one of the reasons that I study the past and the relationship between the past and the present is I often find solace in the historical record. Like it always feels like we used to know things and now we don't. That's Harvard historian Jill Lepore, who for the past decade has been searching for the truth about truth and when it's been elusive in the past and the present. I'm Margaret Hoover. This is the Firing Line Podcast. First of all, I won in 2020 by a lot, okay? Let's get that straight. I won in 2020. Jill Lepore set out to study the truth even before Donald Trump became a national political figure, president, and someone who could inspire his followers to become truth deniers. Trump won in a landscape, and they all know it. There was blatant, outright fraud in the 2020 election. Complete and total fraud, you know it. Trump is a pathological liar, and that was obvious well before he ran for president. The political question is, why do people who know he's lying continue to defend him as if he's telling the truth? Lepore is a professor at Harvard University, a journalist and a podcaster who chronicles times of uncertainty about truth over the last century and beyond in her latest project, an audiobook called Who Killed Truth? This kind of frantic anxiety about truth really dates in the modern era to the very beginning of really social media, when there's a kind of explosion of information and a new type of uncertainty. And the Harvard Law professor weighed in on the Supreme Court's recent decision upending the use of affirmative action in college admissions at her school and others across the country. Taking the 14th Amendment, which guarantees equal protection regardless of race, what it means for originalists to read that language and use it to explain that there can be no longer affirmative action is, I think, baffling to people. It requires a lot of inquiry. Jill Lepore, welcome to Firing Line. Thanks. You've recently published an audiobook titled Who Killed Truth? A History of Evidence. Now, this is a topic that you're not new to. Uh, you've taught it at Harvard, and you've been examining truth in various forms, including on a podcast for years. What prompted you to explore what happened to the truth? Uh, well, I work as a historian chiefly, but I sometimes work as a reporter, and I, in working across those two different realms, got really fascinated by the different standards of evidence and rules of evidence in those two realms, and then kind of needed to come to some understanding of that. It struck me as so interesting that I ended up designing a course around that question. What's the relationship between the rules of evidence in history and journalism, and then also in science, and all of them actually have as a common ancestor the rules of evidence in the law. And so it seemed like a fun course to teach to law students, actually, to think comparatively and historically about how we know things, how we know something is true, how we demonstrate to someone else, or how we find out what's true. And that kind of comparative and historical inquiry was, I mean, I started maybe off of this course maybe 10 years ago, and it was really fun to teach in a classroom, but increasingly seemed relevant to public discourse. So that's when I decided to devise a podcast around this inquiry. But was there something 10 years ago that made you think, oh, we're going to really start needing to look at truth? Uh, there's always something. I mean, it's actually just very much, it feels very much of the moment right now. But I think that has often been the case over the course of 
all of human history that how we know things seems urgent differently at different different moments of time. As a historian, my interest is actually all in the history of evidence and what we do as historians with the asymmetry of the historical record. Like we know so much about certain groups of people and certain individuals and then so little about other groups and other individuals and what are the methods we use as historians to investigate that. Like my work since I was, you know, in college has been fascinated by that question. I think maybe 10 years ago there was... Uh, well, when was the Stephen Colbert truthiness moment? That was 2005, yeah. right? Just to give yeah. you some history of that. That's almost 20 years ago now that I, I think young people feel like, oh, we're just living in this newly tr- post-truth moment. But this kind of frantic anxiety about truth really dates in the modern era to the very beginning of really social media, which is what, 2004? Um, yeah. when there's a kind of explosion of information and a new, just a new type of uncertainty. It's not that uncertainty it's itself new, right? Uncertainty has a history. We have a language across time that we talk about skepticism and doubt and uncertainty. But in, you know, in the, for the last generation, for the last 20 years or so, that conversation has almost always been about technology. You weave together various moments in history to tell a story of how society's understanding of facts and evidence has evolved. For example, you look at a conspiracy theory surrounding the 1969 moon landing and how that emerged, but also back in 1835, a hoax that led people to believe that civilization had been discovered on the moon. What is the single most important thing you learn from looking at truth through a historical lens? I think one of the reasons that I study the past and the relationship between the past and the present is I often find solace in the historical record. That is to say, I often, like everyone else, gets get really wrapped up in the sense of the current crisis and the acuteness of this moment. And, do you know, like, for instance, the discourse around, like, this is the most important election of our lifetimes. Well, it's the most important election of our lifetimes every four years. Anyway, I kind of all buy into that, right? And I think how we think about the history of truth kind of has that same quality. Like, it always feels like we used to know things and now we don't. And so for me, working on the podcast was a way to share the kind of solace seeking that I do, which is, was it ever a little bit like this before? Of course, it was different in the past. But so even just like the the sort of go-to conspiracy theory, you know, the idea that the 1969 moon landing was a hoax, you know, Stanley Kubrick filmed it and... And the whole thing was broadcast just to confuse America. It's a fascinating hoax. You know, we can ask all kinds of interesting historical questions about what were the conditions in the 1960s and early 1970s that led people to subscribe to that idea. And that those are sort of sociological and psychological questions, maybe even political questions. But the historical question is like, what is it kind of about the moon? Like, here's this thing in the sky that people, since people began, have been staring at and wondering about, and it changes night by night by night, and it's mysterious, and it's beautiful, and it's haunting, and it's important, and it has something to tell us, because it's different when it's a full moon. That that night feels different, and we struggle with that, and we kind of try to understand, is it a place? Is it a thing? Is it a creature? And human societies across time have different explanations for the moon. So maybe there's something to be gained by pulling back from 
1969, there was a radio broadcaster who really <laughs> thought the government was involved in all kinds of cover-ups and it had to do with Vietnam. And that's why people worried about the, the moon landing and whether it was a hoax. And it had to do with the uh, unfeasibility of broadcast television and it had to do with the anguish of seeing footage of Vietnam on your TV in the living room or whatever else might make sense for understanding that 1969 moment. There's also a kind of broader history of humanity behind our relationship to the moon. So in that episode that you're talking about, Margaret, we tell the story, we, re we reenact this hoax that was conducted in the 1830s uh, by a newspaper man asserting that there, there was, in fact, a new telescope that was built in that era. And uh, so there was a kind of fake news report of the guy who built the telescope being able to see creatures on the moon for the first time, <laughs> for the first time. And there were a lot of things about the newspaper. People totally believed it. It was kind of like the Orson Welles War of the Worlds 1938 radio broadcast. People totally fell for it because it had all kinds of verisimilitude, like the telescope, telescope was real. The name of the astronomer was real. There were a lot of like dates and kind of fact-like things in it. Um, but you can ask yourself, what is it about the 1830s that makes people fascinated by the idea that there is another whole kind of human being out there? kind of uh, intelligent life that it was important in this account that the moon people were lesser, they were more animalistic. So, you know, the way that other historians have talked about that moon hoax, it has to do with the 1830s and ideas about race and racial hierarchies and the new pseudoscience of, of racism that under per, undergirds a pro-slavery argument. There's a whole, you know, 1830s political history argument about that, the same way there's a political history argument about the 1960s and 1970s. And that really fascinates me. But as a humanist, what I'm more deeply interested in is what do we do with the mysterious? Well, you you spend time, a lot of time actually, several chapters in Who Killed Truth, dealing with the advent of radio and how advances in communication technology since the early 20th century have made it increasingly difficult to tell what's true and what's not. Compare radio's impact on the truth to the internet and social media. You know, it's tempting as a historian always to see parallels. Like this looks like that. You know, is it, they just kind of run in parallel that human responses to emerging technologies of communication um, will follow similar cycles. Mm -hmm. And there's a bit of that, but I also think it's important to recognize when things are kind of just not in parallel and all kind of jaggedy and jiggity. And so from the parallel point of view, right? So technology of, uh, the technology of radio, uh, emerges in the 19 teens. It becomes commercialized in the 1920s and the, it, it reaches Americans in a almost national way quite quickly uh, because of Herbert Hoover's uh, programs around um, uh, ensuring that this new broadcast medium can actually reach rural America. Remember, broadcasting is a is a term that comes from agriculture. You broadcast seeds, I, right? So I mean, because you name-checked Herbert Hoover, we should just make sure the audience knows that it was Herbert Hoover when he was Commerce Secretary that standardized the radio waves and the radio, the usage of radio waves by the federal government, right? Is that what yeah, you were referring yeah, yeah, to? Yeah, yeah, And so, but Hoover makes a big commitment to radio as essentially a public utility that needs to be licensed by the government. So that's important because it's a distinction from the internet, right? Which, which 
yeah. emerges in a libertarian moment, right? So the way the way the radio is set up and the Federal Radio Act of 1927 and it becomes the Federal Communications Act of 1934 is about public licensing and there has to be a kind of public in- interest that broadcasters are obligated to. It has a big effect on how radio works in the early 20th century or in, into into the mid 20th century. But so there is the first truly networked communication because there's been telegraph uh, before that, but most telegraph is you don't have a telegraph in your in your house, right? And and there's not a lot of telephone coverage, and not a lot of people have telephones by the 1920s and 1930s. But people do get radios, and so it's the first truly networked form of communication, and it's also ex- astonishingly intimate. Um, people have this experience now, if you have earbuds in that, you know, someone's whispering in your ear, you can be out for a walk in the world, you can be anywhere and you can hear a human voice. And we're, we're accustomed to that, but it still can be quite unsettling, that intimacy, that feeling of connection with another person when you're listening to them. And they're also disembodied, right? So, um, what you then are told through this new technology, this, you know, tabletop device you might have in your kitchen, it's hard not to believe it. Um, in the same way, you know, the, remember the jokes with the beginning of the internet, people would say, I found it on the internet, it must be true. Like that kind of winking knowledge of like, I've been told this, but I don't know the person who's telling. I, it's, it, it exists outside my entire understanding of networks of trust. Like I might trust my preacher. I might trust my school teacher. I trust, you know, my cousin, my next door neighbor. Here's this voice in my kitchen. Do I trust this voice? But it turned out that early radio researchers, a whole field of radio psychology that emerged, discovered that people really did trust those voices. And then that mm-hmm. becomes by the 1930s a huge problem because that's, you know, how fascism works in Europe. That's how, that's how Hitler, you know, convinces people to believe what he wants them to believe. He can be a, it can, the radio can be used as a device of persuasion. And that's what mass advertising is, right? Talk about the tension between how technology can enhance and hurt our understanding of truth. I think, you know, it's important to remember, uh, you know, a book is a technology, the alphabet is a technology, right? So technologies of communications tend to, with each iteration in their development, bring more people into communication with one another. And uh, so there's a ultimately kind of democratizing effect of technological change. And so when you think about, say, the early internet and that enthusiasm there was um, for the democratic potential of a kind of new digital era that Uh, Or think about the enthusiasm there was in the 70s and 80s for the personal computer. This would mean if, if individuals instead of just big corporations could have their own computers, that, that the diffusion of knowledge, which, you know, think of the kind of 18th century enlightenment discourse around the diffusion of knowledge, like Benjamin Franklin starts a lending library in 1731 in Pennsylvania to diffuse knowledge. That's the big promise of the enlightenment, right? more people are learning more things through scientific discovery, which is made possible by communication over vast distances, by postal services and by writing and and by printing. But until books can be circulated to people who can't afford them, that knowledge does, does not get fully diffused. So each technology of communication, so the printing press, 
um, the weekly newspaper, then the daily newspaper, then the telegraph, then the telephone, then radio, then television, then cable television, then the internet, then social media has extended and democratized an existing body of knowledge, but it also, by democratizing knowledge, allows people to put back into that system their knowledge. And there's just a, 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 a period of disequilibrium with each of those technologies in which you see first a kind of diffusion and democratization, and then that leads essentially to political instability which is then um, tamped down in one way or another through a new form of regulation or a kind of different political settlement around knowledge, around these technologies. And with the case of social media, for instance, we, we've never kind of, we're still in that disequilibrium that started in 2004, that there's never been a kind of uh, much sought after and much discussed in congressional hearings over the years that you know people have watched or ignored um, there's really never been uh, a, a constitutional settlement that rearranges how we think about that 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 technology and its relationship to our. And are we order. still in? Are we still in a moment of political instability from that new technology, from social media, in your view? Um. Yeah, I, I I do think I do think we are. Yeah, I mean, it's you don't need to bring a historian in to observe that the pace of technological change has quickened. So it's much harder to adjust to technological change, make the sort of necessary social and political adjustments to it when it just keeps happening and accelerating. To that point, you know, twenty twenty four presidential election is heating up, and we've already seen deep fake videos of President Biden circulating online campaigns and the country are going to have to deal with how artificial intelligence, another new technology, uh, will assault the truth. What do you think is the next major assault on truth? So I actually, in spite of the fact that my audiobook is called Who Killed Truth, that's really tongue-in-cheek. Like, I don't think, there's not like a group of people who are trying to attack truth or kill truth, right? And I think the the kind of hyper-polarized partisan discourse around that is not super helpful, to be honest. Like, it, there's not a political party that's trying to kill truth. There's not, you know, an individual, you know, they're, they're not these Machiavelli figures who are doing that. I think there's a lot of really socially responsible technological development. I think that Congress has completely failed to execute its obligation to the American public by truly investigating and devising uh, possible uh, legislative solutions to some of these problems. Um, but I also think a lot of it is just human frailty. And so is there, are we awaiting for a new, a new assault on truth? Not quite exactly. Is there reason to be deeply concerned about deep fakes and AI? Absolutely. You know, one of the things you say at the end of the book, right, is that truth isn't gone. It's not been killed. It's not been eliminated. It's still there. Sometimes it's lurking in the corners of your hometown library or in the basement of your hometown library. But there's been uh, a collapse of trust. What historic examples can we look to of places where truth has reemerged or trust has reemerged? How do we tackle the collapse of trust, as you put it? I don't think that historians are likely to have good solutions for epistemic problems. I stumped you. I no, stumped no, no, you. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, you, you know, I'm always stumped. But um, 
It's a good question. I, I, you could think about, for instance, one of the occasions for trust to be compromised is wartime, right? What happens in war? Governments lie to people, right? That, that's, that's what happens. And they're partly lying to people for their own political reasons. They want to enlist and then maintain public support for an unpopular war, say, if you think about the First World War. But they're partly lying to people because they don't want their enemies to know things. So classic example, in the Second World War, uh, there was a tremendous rubber shortage in the United States, but FDR didn't want people to know there was a rubber shortage because he didn't want the Germans and the Italians to know there was a rubber shortage. So he said there was a gas shortage and he rationed gas. Because if you ration gas, people are going to just wear their tires down less, right? But it was, just a, it was a public information strategy decision that had to do with the conduct of the war, not with, I'm going to lie to people because I can, because, <laughs> you know, I, I don't, don't, don't believe in the public trust, right? But s- those things tend to come out, right? That's what, in investigative journalism during a war will forbear and say, all right, we may know there's actually also a rubber shortage, but we're at war and we're not going to, who's going to go break this story, right? <laughs> that's not helpful. Right. But after the war, that stuff's going to come out. So then, have people lost trust in the government or have they gained trust in the government? Well, you know, FDR made a reasonable decision. This was the right thing to do. But then there were consequences to that decision. If you look over the course of American history of the wars of the 20th century, the kind of lying um, that especially the Johnson administration did to the American public during the Vietnam War was unprecedented in modern times and did not get swept under a rug, right? Between the Pentagon Papers and all kinds of other revelations and the kind of embedded reporting that heroic journalists did in Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia meant that the story the government was telling to the American people was entirely at odds with the story that journalists were telling to the American people. And even mainstream broadcast journalists who we wouldn't have even thought of in those terms, we would just have thought them as journalists. You know, even Walter Cronkite's like, is willing to say, we are not actually winning this war, even though the government press announcement will indicate that we are. What is that? How do you recover from that? So a question that journalists ask all the time is, has journalism ever recovered from that? Um, has the government, the U.S. government ever recovered from that? Uh, I think there was a recovery from the kind of wartime lying that FDR did. Um, I think the destabilizing of Vietnam, you know, I'd have to frame an empirical inquiry to try, try to answer that question. I think it's an interesting question. Well, let me let me ask you a different question because you, in answering and tackling this question about truth, you just said, you know, you don't think, you know, the, the partisan lens is very helpful, uh, that you don't think one party is trying to steal the truth or kill the truth versus another party. But there is a candidate of a major party who used to be a president of the United States of America who is propagating a lie about the 2020 election and who does consistently not tell the truth, both in federal courts and to the American people. So it seems, it sort of falls on deaf ears that there isn't a a political element of this. Oh, I'm not saying there isn't a political element of it. And, you know, Trump is a pathological liar. And that was obvious well before he ran for president. The question there is, 
why people believe him, um, why so many people continue to believe him. The And that's maybe the epistemological question. The political question is, why do people who know he's lying continue to defend him as if he's telling the truth? Like that, and that... That's a different question. That's a, that's, yeah. a, that's a different question. That's just a question about politics and and... And yeah. the answer is horrible, right? Like th- those are those are are people fighting for their political careers for sure. These these are re- you know Republican office holders who are willing to continue to defend Donald Trump's lying for the sake of their own political careers. I think that's quite different than people whose trust in the federal government is so non-existent that they would prefer to believe Donald Trump than any other source of information. That, I, I still don't think that for all the books that have been written about Trumpism, I don't really think that's a question people have gotten to the bottom of. I, I will say that I continue to feel baffled and bewildered by it. You've expressed discomfort with the idea of prosecuting former President Trump, even if his alleged actions justify the charges. And one concern you have is, is that this establishes a precedent for future administrations to target their predecessors. And indeed, Trump has vowed to appoint a special prosecutor to go after Joe Biden if he is elected again. In your view, is it more dangerous to prosecute Trump or to not prosecute Trump? I am happy I'm not a person who makes that kind of decision. Prosecuting Trump, the culture of that endless prosecutions, That's the politics that Trump wants. That's the politics he ran for. That's the political system he described when he ran on a campaign to lock up Hillary Clinton. That's the world that he wants. I I guess if, you know, I don't mean to evade your important question. I don't want to ask you to be a political commentator. I'm just asking you as a historian and somebody who's opined about it. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, people will say, was it the right thing for Ford to pardon Nixon? I, even as a kid, remember that moment. Yeah. And I remember the relief in my household, ruling a Republican household. And it wasn't, I don't think my family was pro-Nixon. I was somewhat indifferent to Nixon. But they were pro-political stability. And it seemed the best yeah. path of political stability. So in that moment, which was the most dangerous thing for the country? Not pardoning him. Historically, what was the right thing to do? He shouldn't have pardoned him. If Ford hadn't pardoned Nixon, we might be in a different place today. So I don't think indulging known criminality in an ex-president can possibly be defended. Help me understand that through line. How do you see the through line from Nixon to Trump? If you think about, so I once wrote a piece for The New Yorker about a collection that was made by C. Van Woodward in during the Watergate hearings, the famous historian C. Van Woodward was called at Yale and asked by the House committee that was investigating the possibility of impeachment, was the stuff that Nixon did just politics as usual? Guys like, look, the Republicans on our committee are like, we can't proceed here if this is what all presidents do and just spend hushed up all these years. What's actually the case? What's the truth? And can, you know, could you find out? And Van Woodward got together a bunch of friends and their graduate students and his graduate students. They had like six weeks and they assigned a graduate student to every president. And people went into the archives and the presidential libraries and the presidential papers to try to figure out like, 
what kind of crap do presidents do that we just generally don't know about or that has been kind of winked at? Or maybe that was the subject of big political scandal in their day. Like, let's produce a volume for the House committee that is a report on the presidential misconduct. And they produced this report. And by the time they got, even though they were working very fast for historians and historians work very slowly, by the time they got it out, um, Nixon had resigned. So, so the report wasn't even published as part of the public record. So they had it privately printed. They thought people would want to read it. No one wanted to read it. Everybody just wanted to never think about Richard Nixon again. Um, so the book just disappeared. I went and checked it out of the library during the Trump administration and it had only been checked out twice since 1974. So, um, but what it tells you is that there was something quite extraordinary about Nixon's malfeasance, about the cover-up, about um, sending guys out to do his illegal bidding, um, making lists of his political enemies, and then acting on that. There, there had been a lot of other petty graft, a lot of kind of spoils system nonsense. You know, my wife's cousin really needs a job. <laughs> you know, like there's a lot of embezzlement, petty embezzlement, plenty of misconduct, nothing that was close to the scale of what Nixon had done. And yet when I went back and, and called up a lot of the historians who'd been part of that project during the Watergate investigation, guys who are now in their 90s, and said, you know, if how would you assess Trump's malfeasance? And this was only a couple years into his administration when the Michael Cohen revelations had come out, for instance, and Paul Manafort allegations and kind of campaign-related malfeasance, not even really administrative malfeasance at that point. And all these historians like, oh, this is a, this is next level stuff from Nixon. This, and, and they had ways of talking about that that were really interesting to me, but they were all heartbroken about it because they had exerted themselves as younger people to do the work to say what Nixon did really, he needs to be held accountable for this. And the way in which the pardon, it's not that Nixon was never held accountable. He resigned. Right. He didn't serve out his time. He never really redeemed himself publicly for all the attempts that he made. Um, but the pardon was really meaningful. And the, so I guess, you know, if I'd been an adult at that time, I would have wanted Ford to pardon him because I would have wanted the political stability. I would have wanted the country to move on. Um, what's easier to see from our vantage is what the cost of that what the cost of that pardon was what it meant to say you will not ultimately be held criminally accountable you're the director of a project called amend which has cataloged every one of the thousands of proposals to amend the united states constitution in the nation's history the founders intended the constitution to be difficult to amend but maybe not this difficult. There are those who could make a strong argument that the Constitution has become unamendable. What say you? I do think the Constitution is effectively unamendable. And uh, politicians and activists and ordinary citizens act as if it is unamendable. And in a way, that makes it unamendable. It's one of those things we can kind of believe it into being. There's a, a great law review article called The Myth of the Unamendable Constitution. Um, it hasn't been meaningfully amended since 1971. And what really, in a sense, broke uh, Article 5, which is the provision of the Constitution by which the Constitution is amended, was the Equal Rights Amendment, which had been first proposed, introduced into Congress in 1923, right after the 19th Amendment, which guaranteed women the right to vote. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it passed Congress in 1972, went to the states, and, and was ultimately derailed. 
And since then, there have been a lot of proposals introduced into Congress for the sake of legislators, you know, performing for their constituents. It's not that they don't earnestly wish for these constitutional amendments, but no one's out actively campaigning for particular constitutional amendments in a way that ordinary citizens are are taking notice of. It's not an act, it's just a, a daily piece of our lives. On the other hand, um, state constitutions are amended all the time. Um, but compared to other national constitutions, the United States Constitution just uh, in terms quantitatively, like its amendment rate, the number of amendments averaged over the years it's been in place, it is the least amended constitution and the most difficult to amend. Whereas U.S. states constitutions are very ordinary, like the rate of amendment is 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 quite usual, um, and it's a problem for American political life and and public life because constitutional amendments, it's, it's, it is hard, but the process itself is, is really useful for an electorate, for a polity to discuss, like, are there changes in our fundamental law that we should be arguing over right now? Is, should we be having, you know, town meetings, city meetings, statewide deliberations about these things? That process is no longer in place. And it's part you, of a kind of civic decay. Well, you mentioned the Equal Rights Amendment, and you spent a considerable amount of ink on Phyllis Schlafly in your book, These Truths. Uh, you call her a political genius and credit her with more or less single-handedly defeating the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, by turning Republicans who first supported it into opponents and really galvanizing the conservative movement, the modern American conservative movement against it. Listen to Phyllis Schlafly with William F. Buckley Jr., on the original firing line in 1973. The proposed constitutional amendment passed overwhelmingly by the Senate and the House holds that, quote, equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. That doesn't sound particularly subversive. Well, it's the very innocuous wording of the amendment that is the reason why many people didn't realize in the beginning what unfortunate consequences it would have. We find as we look into the matter that ERA won't give women anything which they haven't already got or have a way of getting. But on the other hand, it will take away from women some of the most important rights and benefits and exemptions we now have. Why do you think that Phyllis Schlafly, who you've called a hugely important driving force in 20th century politics, is not better understood for her influence uh, by mainstream historical accounts. Yeah, I mean, I think Schlafly's just fascinating, and I suppose she's getting her due in a sense today, and that, that I think there's a lot of popular interest in her. There was this sort of horrible, dramatic, adaptation of a, a sort of biographical approach to Schlafly's life recently. But she really has been ignored by historians for two reasons. One, academic historians who tend to be liberal just are, have really been bad at offering a history of conservatism until really the last couple of decades. There really just was no really good scholarly account of the rise of the modern conservative movement. This just tremendously important political insurgency, you know, since the 1950s, of which, you know, Buckley's firing line was an important element. Um, just th that's really changed. There's a lot of great, very new work on the history of the conservative movement, um, but it's it's really recent. 
So academic historians really hadn't paid that much attention to Schlafly because they hadn't paid that much attention to the conservative movement, especially from the grassroots vantage, right? The intellectual piece of it, yeah, maybe as an intellectual history. And then conservative historians just hadn't really paid attention to Schlafly because she's a woman. <laughs> they, they wanted to think the movement was really led by Buckley and, you know, various other figures, especially um, political commentator types. And she was an organizer. She was like a battlefield general marshalling her troops. She was incredibly effective at, at, at what she did. And I think people misperceive that um, because of her self-presentation, right? She's got the blonde bouffant and the pink, even in the shot you showed the and the pink dress, and she would always talk about her children, and she was Mrs. Schlafly. And uh there's a whole vibe that she put out there that was really that was really important to her movement. And uh there's been great new new work on Schlafly recently and and really interesting new work on anti-feminism as a force in the 1970s and 1980s politically. But really, since the 1950s, women were the foot soldiers of that conservative insurgency. It was really suburban housewives who were the foot soldiers of that, of that movement. Schlafly had this kind of kitchen cabinet that she talked about, and her newsletter was just a, a kind of, like, before social media, she had this kind of direct mailing form of communication that was extremely effective at gathering together a constituency that really hadn't been spoken to politically before. So, you know, she's just fascinating, and the the consequences of her move from an anti-communist crusader in the 1950s to uh, the really the chief promoter of Goldwater in 1964 to mm-hmm. to campaigning against the ERA in the 1970s is an extraordinary political transformation. But one of her last public acts in 2016, um, before she died, was to endorse Donald Trump. And you see a through line between her movement and the endorsement of what became Donald Trump's MAGA movement. You know, I see a through line in terms of the political rhetoric involved. In terms of the constituencies, it's a little bit baffling. And, you know, I would want to look at some demography and some election returns to really try to understand that gender piece. One of the ways that Schlafly was effective at arguing against the ERA, which again was sent to the states in 1972, had huge support in both the Senate and the House and was expected to quickly be ratified. There had just been an amendment ratified in 1971. It, people didn't think the Constitution was unamendable at that point. Um, was 1973's Roe v. Wade. And Schlafly was very effective at attaching the ERA to the Roe decision, that they were a package for her. And if you... Um, so for pro-life women, or at a time when there was no pro-life movement, it was kind of an emerging and really fast-shifting set of constituencies. You know, evangelicals were not opposed to Roe for years. Um, Schlafly's doing that work. She's, she's doing that work day by day by day, mailing by mailing by mailing. In the final days of this final Supreme Court term, the court ruled that Harvard and the University of North Carolina's race-based affirmative action programs, permissible for nearly the last half century, violate the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. What do you think the consequences will be of this decision, both on your institution, but at schools across the country? I think that um, schools across the country 
have been bracing for this decision for certainly for the last couple of years with this particular Supreme Court. Admissions departments have protocols in place by which they will attempt to refashion within the framework of this Supreme Court decision new ways to think about the process of selecting students and ways that are consistent with their goals for, you know, at my institution, the president of our university sent out a video message about mm-hmm. how committed the university is to bringing together students from all over the country and all over the world who come from different backgrounds and have had different experiences. And it's their clash in the classroom um, and in the dormitories and in the cafeteria and on the quad and working at a job in the subway shop in, in uh, off campus that is the intellectual experience of, of a college education. Um, I think... So there will be an awful lot of that. I mean, one of the longer-term consequences of this ruling coming on the heels of a series of other decisions by this court going back to 2022, um, so if we kind of mark the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her replacement with Amy Coney Barrett, um, is public agitation about the court, right? The the The, the dissatisfaction... And you asked earlier about trust. The Supreme Court, for a long time in American history, had been one of the more trusted institutions. I think there's a lot of public alarm about what the jurisprudence of originalism really is and means. Um, and that part of that, I think, in some of the dissenting opinions in this affirmative action decision, have to do with taking the 14th Amendment which guarantees equal protection regardless of race, that is part of the anguished attempt, but also thrilling attempt to build a truly multiracial democracy after the Civil War, an amendment that was betrayed and betrayed and betrayed and betrayed and betrayed by the Supreme Court during Reconstruction, during the Jim Crow years. What it means for originalists to read that language and use it to explain that there can be no longer affirmative action is, I think, baffling to people. It requires a lot of inquiry. And I think that in itself um, is likely to be one of the longer lasting consequences, not just because of this ruling, but on the heels of the Dobbs abortion decision, the Bruin gun regulation decision. There's the law school world where People are parsing the words in, in an opinion and a dissent. But then there's the public world where people are like, wait, so because of this word, what? <laughs> like, I think it can be, so, it's, so it's not are, very is what legible as a decision, I guess my, my point is. So, and so I think, did you just say, so I think what you're saying is that the lasting consequence of this decision will be continued erosion of confidence in the court. Is that what you said? I think... A chief consequence of this affirmative action decision on the part of the court, coming on the heels of a series of other decisions that were at variance with public opinion, not that they didn't satisfy a large segment of the American population's political preferences, um, but were at variance with probably majority public opinion and whose legal logic is a little bit illegible, if not largely illegible, 
even to constitutional scholars, like, how did you get to this result again? I think that does erode confidence in the court, but it also stirs up more interest in the court. Let me ask you a question. You've written um, about originalism last June. You said there's no method to it, nothing but inconsistency and caprice. Can you elaborate? So originalists dress up their theory of constitutional interpretation as if it's a form of historical investigation, as if originalism is both a, a mode of jurisprudence, right, a way to judge and to think about the Constitution, and also a historical investigation, like and it has a method to it. But how they write about history is completely inconsistent with any conceivable historical method because it proceeds by understanding the past as deducible from a very finite number of documents and believing that these documents have fixed knowable meanings, knowable public meanings. So there's a lot of different varieties of originalism, but the main one now is um, judges are looking for the original public meaning of a phrase, right? Well-regulated militia, for instance. Um, well, what was the original public meaning of that phrase? Where they look for that meaning is in a very small set of documents. So they're going to look at the text of the Constitution itself, as of course, well, they should. Um, they're going to look at uh, James Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention, which are very dubious as a source. Um, they're going to look at the notes of the ratifying conventions in the states that held ratifying conventions, the delegates who went to those conventions and what they said when they were reading those documents. They, they might look at some newspaper accounts, like at a, at a, at a real stretch. They'll, they'll look at dictionaries from the time they'll look at Samuel Johnson's 1755 dictionary of the English language. Um, does that get us to the original public meaning? Um, they'll look at the Federalist Papers, say. Um, but the Federalist Papers were printed in newspapers. You know, if you go look at the very first Federalist Paper, which was written by Alexander Hamilton, in October of 1787, it appeared in the New York packet. And you open up that newspaper. I do this exercise with students all the time. I print out the newspaper. It's a four-page four paper on one big sheet of paper. And um, you, on the left-hand column on page two uh, is Alexander Hamilton's first Federalist, in which he says that it has been um, left to the people of America to answer for all mankind the important and urgent political question. This is my bad paraphrase of a beautifully written sentence turned by Alexander Hamilton. It's been left to the American people, the question of, of, of whether uh, any people can govern themselves by reflection and choice instead of being governed by others by accident and force. And then on the other, on page three, there are ads for people held in bondage to be sold, you know? So what does it mean to read? What is that original public meaning? that's not a way that originalists on the court read the historical record, right? They read Alexander's Federalist Papers in the, you know, online. On, you know, they read an e-text of it, or they read their Penguin edition of it, or they read some cloth-bound beautiful edition that they have in their law library. They're not reading it the way people read it at the time. They're not, we are not living in 1787. We can't answer the question of what anything meant in 1787 when we're looking at the documents and records left behind by a small, very small group of enfranchised American white men. And we are the descendants of all the people whose lives are documented in those newspapers and whose lives are not documented at all. And if we actually were to concede, which I would not concede, that how we understand our constitutional rights in the 21st century needs to be discovered 
1787, in the historical record of 1787. From a his- historical methods point of view, you'd need to consult a much greater archive, the archive that tells us about all kinds of people, people who were wholly disenfranchised or very weakly enfranchised. Maybe there are property requirements they just barely made it into, but they couldn't participate in the ratifying conventions. Or, you know, some of there's a famous Ben Ben Franklin joke about whether if you you know don't have a donkey today but you had one yesterday, can you vote or not? Like the requirements for being of a, a, a politically active citizen in that moment in time are really dubious. So. Are we to be have our constitutional meaning dictated by that set of constrained historical source sources? I think if 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 we're left with the jurisprudence of originalism, we need to have a, a much more capacious historical archive. Jill Lepore, thank you for your thoughts and reflections. I appreciate you joining me here on Firing Line. Thanks a lot, Margaret. <laughs> 